resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture says in Acts chapter 9 that Saul stood over Stephen and he approved of his execution. And it goes on to say that he went out from there ravaging the church, raking people over the coals, grabbing people that, that uh, bowed to the name of Jesus Christ and belonged to this thing called the way, this, this following of Jesus Christ that was called the way. And he would drag them out of their churches and take them to be prosecuted and persecuted and thrown in prison. And Ananias sitting in the privacy of his own home, is confronted by the same Jesus that confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. He saved Saul on the road to Damascus, and he calls Ananias to do something extreme. He says to Ananias, there's a man named Saul. He's in the house of Judas on the street called Straight. And I need you to go to him. And I need you to put your hands on him. And I need you to call him into ministry for me. He's there in that place right now, Ananias. And he's in prayer. And his eyes are covered with something like scales. And I need you to go to him. And I need to use you to call him into a life of ministry. And the scriptures say that Ananias obeyed God. But I'm going to tell you that Ananias obeyed after he said, But wait a minute, God. Do you know who this is? Do you know who you're sending me to go to? This guy kills people like me. This guy is an enemy to the faith of Jesus Christ. He's an adversary at best. And are you sure that you need me to go into his presence because that might end up costing me my life or my freedom? But the scriptures say that our Ananias was faithful to obey the calling of God, and he went to that street called Straight, to that tyrant called Saul, who now is about to become a follower of Jesus Christ, and he did as God commanded him. And in essence, what God commanded Ananias to do that day was to love his enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us today as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, and we finish out this, this stanza of teaching that Jesus has given us that is intense beyond the word. And we are called to do the unthinkable in the culture that we live in. We are called to do the unthinkable in our flesh. We are called to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. And that is exactly what he called Ananias to do, and he's calling you to do, and me to do, and he will continue to call his people to do until Jesus Christ comes again. So as we turn to this passage, here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. A a sermon is not fully preached until a sermon is applied. I I could stand here and, and really wax eloquently with with what the text says and throw some Greek at you and some Hebrew at you and just be this big academic sermon. But if this sermon is not applied to your life and to your heart, we've really not accomplished what God's called us to come together to do this morning. We have to be changed by our encounter of Jesus' teaching. And I pray all week as I study that God would bring people here that need to be changed, to conform to his word. And the person that comes here that says, I want the word to conform to my life, that God would convict that and change that and call that person to say, I'm going to bow to this word. 
And so here's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to work with me through every part of this sermon this morning. And I want you to be responsible for the application of this word to your life. I'm going to help you a little bit along the way, but you've got to stay with me and you've got to apply this word to your life in a very personal and real and tangible way. So here's how we do this. Right now, I want you to consider in your mind, do a quick inventory, and I dare say this isn't going to take long. I want you to find that person in your life that regretfully right now you call an enemy. Okay? Pow. I'm, I'm watching these balloons over your heads pop up, and I can't read the words in them, but there's names in those, those speech balloons above your head. I know what you're thinking. I mean, you, you've got this enemy in your mind. I want you to have this person in your mind, maybe it's two or three, and as we look through what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to apply Jesus' teaching to that relationship that you have in your mind. Can you do that with me this morning? That's the application of this sermon. So let's look at our text and let's understand the scope of what we're going to do this morning with these few verses here. So Matthew five forty three, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, You shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good. And he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we need this word. Father, at the mere reading of this word, we tense up. Father, we, we understand that we have those people in our lives that we consider to be foes, to be enemies. And so, Lord, I pray, because we all have this situation in our life, I pray that this message would change us so that we can be perfect as you are perfect. So, Father, we submit to you now this, these next few minutes. We give these to you and ask you to work us over so that we might be conformed to your word and to your ways for your glory and for our benefit. And I pray this in the name of our Christ who spoke these words to us. Amen. There are three purposes that Jesus starts these six blocks within this passage, within this text in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 is, is some really heavy hitting. And we have really trudged through some difficult teaching Sunday after Sunday. And all of this starts, each of these six points that Jesus makes, start with, you have heard that it was said. And if you look at these six teachings of Jesus, that he starts with those words, he's really doing this with three purposes. The first purpose is he is wanting to correct a superficial reading of the Old Testament law. And he does this with two of them. He, he says on the one about murder, he said, you've heard that it was said you shall not murder and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
So it was a superficial reading that these people were giving to the Old Testament law. And he's saying it's not the mere physical outward act of murder that's wrong. It's the heart behind the murder that I really want you to be dealing with. He does it also with the one of lust. Everybody said, I've got this adultery thing down. I don't commit adultery. But he says, but if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already done it in your heart. So those are superficial readings that Jesus is rebuking and correcting. The next one is that he's he's trying to correct a distortion of the Old Testament law. So he does this on the divorce and adultery thing. And it was an easy divorce culture. And he says there's only one exception to to allow you to divorce a woman. That's marital unfaithfulness. So I I don't want you to distort the teaching. I want you to obey it. He also does this with oaths. And with the retaliation, turn the other cheek last week. We looked at those, and those were distortions. But today, in this sixth area that Jesus speaks to us from, he is correcting, he is rebuking a falsification of the Old Testament law. This one's different. This one's drastic. And so let's look at what he says here. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The love your neighbor part is easy, right? We've talked about that a lot on these Sunday morning messages. We are to love God first and we are to love our neighbor second. And these are the two greatest commandments. But this love your neighbor has permeated all of Scripture. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's what Jesus is quoting from first. But then he goes on to say, you've heard that it was said also that you should hate your enemy. Well, be careful. Be careful. Because the scriptures don't say that. That is a falsification of the Old Testament law. Nowhere in scripture are you commanded, we commanded, to hate our enemy. God said, love your neighbor. And these Pharisees of the day took that to mean, let's just focus on neighbor, and therefore we have some enemies. We're going to say our enemies are not our neighbors, so we can hate them. Because he's really only talking about our neighbors, our our close-in people that are tight with us. We're to love them, and boy, we like the sound of that. But those enemies, because God was silent on that, we'll hate those enemies. That's an absolute falsification of God's command. This is a result of a loose interpretation of the term neighbor. And in the days of Israel, the neighbor was a fellow Israelite. But Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, verse 29 and following, Jesus corrects this wrong thinking about who your neighbor is. We've looked at this in the past several weeks ago, but the the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a lawyer who's asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus unpacks this good Samaritan parable. And he basically tells us that the Samaritans and the Israelites were bitter enemies. And this Samaritan helps a destitute Israelite who is on the side of the road when he should be actually hating him. And Jesus says, this is who your neighbor is. So in short, Jesus says, your neighbor is also your enemy. And so we are to love our neighbor's And our enemies is Jesus' teaching. And that supports what's found throughout the whole word of God. So before we move on, I want to ask this question. We need to understand this before we move through the rest of this. Why is it wrong 
for a follower of Christ, for a human being, I dare say, why is it wrong to hate your enemy? Why would that be wrong? They've intended harm for you. They've persecuted you. Saul was a tremendous enemy of the church, of Israel, and of the church, rather, not of Israel. And Ananias was just in his fear to confront Saul. And I'm going to tell you this morning that we must think of our enemies in terms of the fact that they are image bearers of God who made them. And so when we hate an enemy, we are hating one that bears the image of his maker and of your maker and of my maker. And so this hatred of an enemy is wrong against an image bearer of God. And anger against enemies is for God to deal with, because he does say in Scripture in Romans, vengeance is mine. And it's an in, in anger with an enemy that God has reserved to deal with once and for all in the end times. But he is just and he is good and he sends sunshine and he sends rain even on his enemies right now. And we are to do the same and to leave this hatred or this judgment of enemies for God in the end times when it's appropriate. Anger against enemies works against evangelism and salvation. We are called to go to those who don't know the gospel and to share it with them. And if we hate our enemy, we are not going to be inclined to go share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. That is wrong. That is exactly who needs the gospel. That is exactly who we should go to. Ananias did a fabulous work in the kingdom of God because he went to his enemy to anoint him and to call him into ministry. So said, said another way, if we go back to the very first of Jesus' teachings in this section, anger in your heart is hatred of your enemy, and that is murderous to an image-bearing person who images their God. So that's why hating our enemy is wrong. Scripture does not call us to hate our enemies. Scripture calls us to love our neighbor, and our neighbor includes our enemies. So let's move on now. Look in verse 44. Jesus gives us these strong words, but I say to you, and we've looked every week at how that declares the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God himself speaking this, but I say to you, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a lot like last week when somebody strikes you on the right cheek you to turn to him the other one also. If one forces you to go one mile, you're cheerfully to go two miles. If one's going to sue you and take your tunic, the shirt off your back, give to him your coat as well. It's contrary to the culture that we live in. That rails against our inner being, our fallen nature. I said last week, turning the other cheek is, is not our natural response when we're struck on the right cheek, is it? Our immediate response is this clenching of our fist and a rearing back and ready to punch back. It's almost an involuntary reflex. And today it's almost an involuntary, it is an involuntary reflex to hate our enemy with bitterness. And Christ is calling us out of this. He's telling us this is not how the disciple acts and lives in this world. The words love and enemy are not supposed to go together in a sentence. <laughs> if you left it to us, is it? It's just not right. That's not good use of language to love an enemy in the same sentence. 
But in the kingdom of God, it absolutely is the way we should be. He goes on to say, though, not just love your enemy. He says this, pray for those who persecute you. I read that. I can almost tell you the moment I was in the study and this thought came to my mind. Yeah, I'll pray against them. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm going to pray these imprecatory psalms and, and that we see David praying down on his enemies. God, strike them. I'll pray that. I can pray that one with ease. But no, he says pray for your enemies. That takes a humility. That takes a genuine concern for another person no matter what they've done to you. That takes an eternal perspective on your relationships with people on this earth right now. It takes eternity in your mind. This is what we see twice in Scripture, this idea of praying for your enemies. Maybe you've already gone there in your mind. I hope you have. The first time that I'll give you, in reverse order, the first time I'll give you is Stephen. He's just proclaimed the whole history of Israel and the gospel of Jesus Christ to some Israelites and Pharisees. Saul is present and they gnash their teeth at him, and they strike him dead. And right before they strike him dead, he says, Father, do not hold this against them. He's praying for his enemies, not against, not against. He's not saying, God, smoke them right where they are. He's saying, Father, do not hold this against them. And he learned those words from someone else, didn't he? He learned those words from his Savior, Jesus Christ, who while on the cross being persecuted and crucified and in his dying moments, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we have two vivid examples in the scriptures that we are to follow. And Jesus here is calling us to do what he in fact did himself while hanging on the cross. Genuine prayer for an enemy cannot happen without hoping for their good. Jesus on that cross, Stephen as he was dying, he hoped, he hoped for the good of his enemy. And his hope was that they would have eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven, with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because he said, do not hold this against them. The implication is, but receive them into your kingdom, Lord. And Jesus says, do not hold this against them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Lord, because in forgiveness they will dwell with me forever. So Stephen and Christ had an eternal perspective on the relationship that they were having in that moment with their enemies. Do you live like this when you go to work tomorrow? Do you live like this even in your relationships amongst us? Do you live like this in your relationship with your in-laws and the family that you've married into or the family that you were raised up by? Because there's enemies embedded in all those relationships. Tragically, it's a fallen world that we live in. Do you look at these broken relationships where there's hostility between these people with an eternal perspective? That's the key. We are people that live in the kingdom that's already here but not yet fully consummated. We are beginning, we are living in the very beginning of eternity. And we need to be thinking about eternity as we have relationships with those people that we call enemies. 
And I'm going to tell you this, and I've practiced it, not all the time. I wish I was steadily consistent on this. But when we pray for an enemy, that animosity and that hostility and that bitterness and that angst that we have for them starts to dwindle away. And I want to tell you something. It is very freeing. It is very freeing. But we are so bound up in this jail called hatred for our enemies. We're in prison to it. It affects how we think about the job that we go to where that enemy works. It makes us hate these family reunions that we have to go to. We're in prison. And Jesus is trying to free us from this by saying, Oh, let me tell you something. If you'll look at your enemies with eternal perspectives in your mind, I'll free you from this and you can love them and you can pray for them and it will be good for the kingdom and for those people and for your soul. Paul tells us clearly about this. You know this passage well. You hear it most of the time at weddings, but let's apply this here to this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Just listen to this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just listen to that, not in relation to the person that you're marrying. Listen to those words in relation to your situation with an enemy. And I pray it's not the one that you married. (laughs) And then he says this, love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is what? Let me hear it. Love. The greatest is love. And so what has been said here by Paul is the greatest character trait The greatest character trait that can be found in a human being, yes, and even a Christian, is love. And we're talking about love our enemies. So watch this. If the greatest character trait of a person is love, and if the greatest person, the greatest being is God, and would you agree the greatest of the great is God himself, then the greatest manifestation of love is to love God. So when you put love and God together in a sentence, that is brilliance. That is magnificence at its best. But if you take love, this greatest characteristic of the Christian life, and you lay that over onto an enemy, that's your second best manifestation of this love. So we want to love God first, use this greatest trait for the greatest being, God himself. But then the greatest expression of love next, the most impossible in human minds of this manifestation of love next has got to be with the enemy, doesn't it? And so we are called to do something drastic here. Take a drastic character trait of love and lay it over against a drastic person in our lives, an enemy. And you can only love an enemy 
if you do that first one first, if you love God. If you are here this morning and you don't love God, and I'm proclaiming what Jesus says here, that we are to love enemies, I'm going to tell you it's going to be impossible for you to love an enemy if you don't love God. You've got to have that relationship down. You've got to be close with God. You've got to be submitted to God. And you've got to actually say, Lord, enable me to love my enemy because I can't do it. So do you love God? And if you do, you will see here in a moment that you will love your enemies. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 18 through 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Love him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I'm going to ask this morning, and we're just going to apply real quick, how do we love our enemies? And I asked you at the beginning of this sermon to work with me on the application of this word. You've got an enemy in your mind. Maybe you have several. How are you going to be able to show them love this next week? Well, according to Romans 12, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to meet their physical needs. We're going to be willing to love them and meet their physical needs, whatever those may be. And I would say that second, we're going to be willing, and boy, this one's tough. We're going to be willing to meet their emotional needs. Do they need encouragement? Does your enemy need to be encouraged this next week in something that is unrelated to you? Are you willing to love them and encourage them in that moment? And I'm going to call you out. Let's encourage them with the word of God, not human logic. (laughs) So we need to meet their physical needs and we need to meet their emotional needs. How are you going to do that this next week with that enemy that you're thinking of? And then the third thing that we need to do with them is that we need to be able to meet their spiritual needs. And that's where Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Not against, for, on behalf of. As a representative to God for them. And I guess I need to ask you this question, too, because here's a question I asked myself this week. Why is that person that I call enemy my enemy? Is it because I've been arrogant? Have I made them my enemy because I am prideful and I am arrogant? Or is it because I'm faithful to Christ and they're persecuting me for righteousness sake? I have to ask that question and I have to be real careful in how I answer it. Real careful. Are they my enemy because I'm abrasive? So really I need to be careful and you need to be careful in labeling people as your enemies because you might actually just be their enemy. (laughs) And they're not really your enemy. You've made them to be your enemy because you're their enemy. So let's look now at why Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us. When you see in the Bible, as you're reading the Bible and you see the words that we have next here, so that you need to circle those words. 
Because that is a purpose. Here comes a purpose. Whatever was said before this, so that. This is now going to be the purpose for which you are to love enemies and pray for persecutors. So that you may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's a big time phrase. You are called, I am called to love enemies and pray for persecutors against me in order that I might be called a son of my father who is in heaven. Folks, there is a lot on the line with this issue of loving enemies. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot going on here. Basically, I like to say this, I put right here, like father, like son. That's what's going on here. If I am going to love my enemies, I'm going to be like my father. And I'm going to be his child and I'm going to imitate my father. Loving our enemies is God's way of loving. And that's the way God loved you and me. Because there was a time when you and me, and maybe some in this room still are, enemies of God. When we sin and we defy and wrong a God who gave us commandments of things to do and not to do, And the ultimate sin is a lack of belief in Jesus Christ. When we are not there, we are an enemy of God's. And God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are to imitate our Father who is the most loving and gracious God by loving our enemies just like he loved us. Listen to these two verses. In fact... Uh, Just listen to these two verses, Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I like to read it like this. I think this is a faithful rendering of the passage. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still enemies, sinners, enemies, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That's love. That's love. And that's the kind of love that we're called to imitate so that we can be called sons of our Father who is in heaven. You see it? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, and that's what the text says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So let me tell you this morning, folks, we have all at some point been considered an enemy of God's. And God looked at us as his enemies and said, I'm going to convert them to sons, not not friends, not pals. Not neutral people that aren't defying me. I'm going to call them children. Children. I'm going to put my name on them. I'm going to love them now so that I can love them then for all of eternity. We're called to be sons of our Father and to do like our dad does, if you will. I dare call him dad. Abba Father. (laughs) But we are to imitate him in our relationships with our enemies. How about this one? Like what Paul wrote over in 1 Timothy. But I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And right before that, Paul says he was an insolent opponent of Christ's. Ananias knew he was an insolent opponent, did he not? And Paul says, I received mercy for a reason, and that reason was that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him through eternal life. So when we love our enemies, we are setting an example for them. We are pointing them to Christ because this is what Christ did for me. I'm going to do it for you, and Christ is doing it for you, by the way. So through this act of love towards enemies, there are many that will believe in him for eternal life. This is a heavy passage. This is a very, very critical thing in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. If you call yourself his disciple, you have to embrace this passage. You have to clutch to it tight and hold it to you and don't let go. And you have to say, I'm not made like that, Father, but you can make me anew and I can imitate this, but only if you will do it through me. Alfred Plummer was a British theologian back in the 1800s. He said something that I can't improve on, so I'm going to read it right, right from his writings. To return evil for good is satanic. To return good for good is human. We can do that. But to return good for evil is divine. It's godly. May we not be a people that return good or evil for good. And may we not just relax and say, I'm going to give good for good. No, let's be radical followers of Jesus Christ. And let's say, I'm going to return good even when I receive evil. Because I want to be like my Father who is in heaven. And I want other people to become his children. And that's one of the means through which God will accomplish that goal. So this is not some passage that is like fortune cookie wisdom. Okay? Let's don't treat this as Confucius-like sayings where, yeah, it's, it's a good thing to love enemies. That's, that's probably a good thing to do. No, let's see this as authentic discipleship. This authentic following of Jesus Christ. And the love that God commands His very own is the love that God gave to His very own. This is exactly how He loved us. And He's done it first, and He's calling us to do it second in His strength. And we are to reflect the character of God in a dark and decaying world. This is how we are, salt and light, by the way. This is, this is being salt and light in this world, loving enemies. It's salt and light where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, we are to imitate our Father. Paul also wrote in Ephesians, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Hear it? Let's be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you love your enemy like Christ loved you, you are actually worshiping God and you are a fragrant offering to him. And he loves the smell of it. He loves it. And I want to, before I move on, I want to I stress one thing. Let's be careful with this passage. We do not become children of God by loving our enemies. This is, that's a works-based salvation if we believe that. So we don't love so that we're called as children and we get eternity. Okay? We love our enemies because we're children of God. You see the difference? So do not turn this love of enemies into a work that you're going to do to get saved by Christ. Look at loving your enemies as evidence, as a fingerprint that you are a child of God. And it will be a demonstration and an act of worship instead of a ticket to heaven. It's an act of worship. Then he goes on to say, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. I'm back in Matthew 5 now. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust So God here, this is an example that Jesus gives us of how God loves his enemies as much as he loves those who love him. Okay? And so we're to imitate him. God reigns and shines on all men, enemies and children. And Jesus here does not promise that this love of enemies is going to return to us a friend. Because not everyone that Jesus has loved has become a friend of his. Some are not going to spend eternity with him. They're going to go to hell and spend eternity separated from God where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. So not everyone that God has loved by raining on and shining on turns into a friend or a child of God. And we do not need to have an investment mentality in our relationships. We do not need to say, I'm going to love them until they love me back. And at some point I'll quit if they don't turn. God does not do that. God loves you and loves you and loves you as you shake your fist at him. And he is patient and gracious. But there is a day at the end where the enemies of God will no longer have rain and shine poured upon them. They will have wrath and judgment poured upon them. But until then, he's loving his enemies. And we are to reserve that for God, and we are just to love our enemies until he comes again so that we might be used by him to usher more into the kingdom. So our love of enemies is independent of the person loved and what they deserve, and we are not a results-oriented lover. We cannot love them only if we get the results that we expect. This is an inward attitude that does not end. Then last, almost second to last. Worldly logic has got a dead end at the end of it. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What does that get you? The tax collectors do that. Who's a tax collector? Just real quick. A tax collector in Jesus' day was a vile person. These were Israelites who were viewed as traitors because they yoked themselves to the Roman government and they collected taxes on behalf of Caesar so that Caesar could finance his occupation of Israel. 
And so to call someone a tax collector was to, in our day, call someone Benedict Arnold, right? A traitor who betrayed his nation, his people. And so tax collectors were vile people. Furthermore, they often over-collected and they kept for them the, the proceeds above and beyond what Caesar required and they profited from their work for Caesar against Israel. And Jesus says, these tax collectors, they love who love them. And so you're nothing more than a tax collector if that's all you do. And then he goes on to talk about Gentiles. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles were enemies of God. They were pagans. They did not worship God. They didn't follow Jesus Christ. They had all kinds of pagan gods that they followed. And he's saying, you're no better than them if you only greet your brothers. And you're just saying to people that you love, hello, and they're saying hello to you. That's nothing. I want you to be like your father in heaven. I want you to rain and shine on the evil and on the good and on the just and on the unjust. Just like God does. And through that, God will be glorified. And some might just be called into the kingdom and become children of his for sure. So Jesus says, it's common to man to love those who love you and greet only those who greet you. But we are called to be (laughs) counter-cultural. That's the Sermon on the Mount. The entire sermon is calling us to be counter to the culture that we live in. And we are to be light that pierces this darkness. And there's nothing that's more bright than someone loving their enemy. And there's no more dark darkness than an enemy being loved and and light shining into that. There's nothing more decaying in this world than bitter enemies at each other's throat. But there's nothing more salty, more preserving than, than someone loving their enemy. And it preserves that and that rot stops. You see that? Salt and light applied right here. And when we evaluate our relationships, we are prone to be so pleased with the love and harmony that exists between those that are loving and harmonious to us. And we're so quick to say, you know, I've got it all right. I'm, I'm good. I've got so much love in my life. What we really need to be looking at, though, is who are our enemies? And what are our hearts and our actions and our words and our thoughts toward them? We tend to love only those who love us. And I dare say we tend to only love those who cooperate with us, don't we? If you will cooperate with me... You're not an enemy, you're a, you're a friend. But you stand against something that I want, an idea that I have, a passion that's mine. You stand against that, I'm going to have to hate you. That's how we're wired after the fall. And Christ is saying that we need to be above and beyond the culture that we live in. And we need to do the unnatural. We need to love those that are enemies. Here's the last thing we'll look at. And this is a shocking statement. A statement that is often very misunderstood and misapplied. You, therefore, Jesus says, oh boy, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What do you do with that? I mean, we're not going to, but that could be a sermon in and of itself because there is all kinds of ways to misinterpret that. We have to read that verse with Matthew 5, verse 20. He has said at the beginning of this section, He said that your righteousness 
should surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now he puts the other bookend on this section of text, and he says, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you see how we've got these two bookends here. What does Jesus mean by perfect? Ultimately, he means that we are to be whole, mature, complete, faithful followers of him. And we are to pursue perfection. And there is a day when perfection is coming to us, those that believe in Jesus Christ, because when he comes again and he gathers his church to spend all of eternity in heaven with him and the Father and the Spirit, we will be perfect. We will be given new bodies without scars. We won't have any battles with diseases anymore. We won't have enemies to to battle with, to love. We're going to be perfect. We are going to once again bear the image of God with perfection. He made us on day six in the garden in Genesis chapter two, perfect. And he saw that it was good. But we fell and we marred this perfect creation. And now we are striving again towards perfection. And it will only be complete when Christ comes again. And raises those from the dead that are in him. So there's perfection coming for us. And we are to strive right now to be perfect as Christ was. And that's why he gave us the Sermon on the Mount. To work on us and to shape us and to sand us down where we're rough. To make us more and more perfect progressively. And so we need to strive for perfection. But I'm here to tell you this morning. We can't get it. We can't become perfect on our own. We need someone to be perfect for us. We need someone to be perfect in our place. To come and do what no man could ever do. And that someone is God himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled every iota and every dot of the law. And when we put our faith in him, God looks at us through his son and he sees perfection. You see that? That is called good news. You hear the term gospel. Gospel means good news. And I've just told you the best news ever. You can be considered perfect by God if God looks at you through his son, Jesus Christ. And says, my son fulfilled the law, and through my son, I see those that believe in my son. I see those that believe that my son died on the cross in their place, and I rose him from the dead on the third day. Those that believe that, when I look at them through that cross work and that resurrection work of Christ, I see perfection. Perfection. So Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone in this room can fulfill what he's called us to do. Be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And so this morning, you've got to ask yourself a huge question. Who am I? Who is God? And where is Jesus Christ? Is he between us or not? Does God look at me through the lens of his son Christ? And if he does not, I am in a desperate way because right now I am viewed as an enemy. I'm an enemy. And God, in his moment of love, you know what he's done here? 
The fact that you're here listening to this sermon, the fact that I've presented to you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is shining sun on you and giving you rain in this moment because you're an enemy, yet you're still getting rained on and you're still getting lit up by the sunshine. But that day is going to come to an end and this opportunity is not always going to be here. And so you're living in a moment as an enemy where God is loving you by enabling you to come here and hear from him and his word. You've not heard from me today, I pray. I pray you've heard from God himself in the word because I have stood before you and proclaimed the gospel according to the Bible. And so this has been a moment, if you're here and you don't believe in Christ, where you've been an enemy that has been loved by God. And I ask this morning, as we close, would you consider this Christ, this way to perfection, this way to become a child, a son of God, Would you consider him seriously this morning? And if you need to talk further about him, I invite you to come down and see me this morning or come see me this week. We've got elders here this morning that could be available at the front. But here's a call. Take yourself from enemy status to child status in the strength and in the blood and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's love for you. Let's pray.